So this morning I'm going to read scripture from Romans, starting in chapter 7, verse 15. So please join me there if you'd like. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is, it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore there is excuse me there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the same things, on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. This is God's word for us today. Thanks for reading that, Steve. There's a lot of back and forth in that passage, and uh, even as I looked at it, there's a lot there. Uh, hey, I want to start off with a confession this morning. It's always good Sunday when the pastor begins with uh, some confession. Uh, for most of my life, uh, I have struggled with and been haunted by uh, this sense that God is not present with me. Uh, now, that might seem like a bit of a shock. I mean, after all, I'm a pastor, right? I, I went to seminary, and yet, uh, for a lot of my life, I've struggled with this feeling that God actually isn't there. Uh, in fact, I grew up in a church context, in a religious context, and, and so I'd often hear people talk about uh, how they would hear God's voice, and, and I wanted that, and I, I asked about it, but it, I never could quite figure out how do people hear God's voice, or people would say, like, I just knew that God wanted me to do this. And I said, that's great. How do you get that? Like, God, can you just send me an email? Like, just, just tell me that you're there so I can know what to do. But for a lot of my life, I struggled with the sense that God wasn't very present with me. 
Like, I, I believe that God was there, but, but it seemed like we were kind of just like in separate countries. And so I knew him and I believed in him, but, but as far as like a day-to-day kind of thing, it seemed like that wasn't a reality for me. And so what I did uh, is I developed a little bit of a superstitious relationship with God. And by that, I mean this is, is I started to believe that if I did good things, then God would come close to me. But if I did bad things, then he would kind of move away from me. And so, so that meant that when I had big life events coming up, like when I had a test coming up in high school, I made sure the whole week leading up to the test, I was really good. So that the night before the test, I could say, God, please come through for me tomorrow. Uh, or, or I wanted to ask that girl out. And I was like, really, really good, because I really, really, and so the night before, I said, God, please let her say yes. Uh, but then she said no. Like, like, so, so I had this sort of like relationship with God where, where I thought as long as I do good things, then God will come close to me. But the problem was I struggled to do good things. I didn't always do good things. And, and so then uh, like it was a really exhausting relationship with God. I felt like I was always trying to convince him to come close to me and, and I was always screwing it up. And so I was, I was constantly stuck in this question of, of how do I get God to come close to me? How do I hear him and how do I, how do I know him? Because it seems like as much as I try to be good so that he'll be good to me, I'm not always good. Like, I don't know if you've ever felt that way towards God. Like, you believe that he's there. Maybe you have some kind of concept that God is there. Uh, but in the everyday stuff of your life, it seems like you're on different wavelengths. It seems like you're in different places, that God isn't actively present in your life. And you hear people talk about it, and it sounds really good. And yet, for a lot of your experience, you don't feel that. I want you to know I'm in the same boat as you. And that for a lot of my life, I felt that way. And I had this kind of sense that if I was good, then God would be good to me. You see, we're, as a church, we're in this uh, four-part conversation. We're in week three of four-part, and I call it a four-part conversation because everything sort of builds on itself. And it's all around this idea of how do I know God personally? Because like, the thing that I wanted in that, I wanted to know that God was there. I wanted to know that God cared about me, and I wanted to know what God wanted with my life. I was seeking to know him and, and that he would be involved in my life, and yet I struggled with that. Like, I think a lot of us struggle with. Is God really there? Does he really care about me? Does he really want to know me? Uh, and so we're, we're looking at uh, how the God of the Bible, the God that Jesus teaches us about, reveals to us, is a God who wants to be known personally. In fact, it's in his very character to be personal and to be accessible and to be relational. And Jesus shows this by coming to us in the flesh, and then he invites us to know God's Holy Spirit, God's personal presence that's available to all of us. And so in the first week, we looked at five things the Holy Spirit does so that you can know him personally. I want to remind us of these things because we're going to build on that this morning. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, God himself, comes to us and he does five things so that we can know who he is. He inspires scripture. And so the Holy Spirit inspires this word so that we can know objectively who God is. But then the second thing he does, he illuminates our hearts which means he opens up our hearts and our minds so that we can understand God subjectively. We can see the objective word of God and understand what it means for us subjectively. But then the third thing happens, and that's this, he he ignites conviction. As I understand God objectively, I see my own life, and he ignites this sense in me that there's something here that needs to be addressed. There's a need that I have. There's a, a falling short that I have. And so I have this conviction that, that something needs to happen so that I can be restored to relationship with God. And he does this so that you and I will see our need for Jesus. And he invites us to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. And when that happens, the fourth thing happens, and that's this. He imputes Christ's work to us. He takes everything that Jesus does and he applies it to us. 
And in that moment, you become a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian is you are now in Christ. God's work has been accomplished and applied to you through the Holy Spirit. And then the last thing happens is this, the Holy Spirit indwells you, which means that when you become a Christian, God is always present and available in your life. This is what God wants. This is how he wants you to know him. Uh, but that means a couple things. That means if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, maybe you're reconsidering Christianity after a little while, but you, you haven't turned from your sin and trusted Jesus, the Holy Spirit is still pursuing you, but the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell you yet. And so the Holy Spirit's gonna, uh, he's gonna show you scripture and he's gonna help you understand it. And he may even start to ignite some conviction, this sense that, that I have a need that needs to be addressed. But something happens in that process that if we're not aware of it, we'll actually short circuit our ability to turn to God. So that rather than turning to God, we turn away from God. Rather than turning to Jesus, we turn away from Jesus. And that's what I wanna talk about this morning is what happens that causes us not to turn to Jesus, but away from Jesus. And the same thing is true for Christians. Christians, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells you. He is there in your life and he's going to show you your ongoing need for confession your ongoing need to fight sin and to turn to Jesus, he's gonna convict you on that. But if we're not aware of this, the enemy's gonna come in and he's gonna turn us rather than towards Jesus, away from Jesus. And so that's what we're gonna look at this morning is what happens in our inner life? What does the Holy Spirit do inside of us so that we can actually know God intimately and personally? And so uh, if I could kind of summarize everything that we're going to talk about just in one sentence, right? So those of you who are like note takers or, or like you, you just need a sentence to hang on to, here's, here's what I want you to hang on to. This is what we're going to see. Okay, the Holy Spirit dismantles, dismantles the power of sin and shame in your life. And the Holy Spirit dismantles the power of sin and shame in your life. And I want to show you how that happens. All right, we're going to get to the end of Romans 8. Uh, last week, Olivia led us through the middle of Romans 8 and showed us how we are God's sons and daughters and how we can uh, trust him in the midst of suffering. And, and, and I want to get to Romans 8, but as I studied it this, this week, I realized we have to understand Romans 7 to appreciate Romans 8. And so that's why we went back to Romans chapter 7. And, and in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul, uh, who's this leader in the church, he's, he's turned and trusted in Jesus. He's now leading churches and he's writing letters. And in chapter 7 of Romans 8, He's struggling. Uh, and he invites us into that struggle in verse 15. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Right, Paul's saying this, I know that I should do good things. I know that I should do good things, but what comes out of me is not good things, but bad things. Right, you've experienced that, haven't you? You know that you should say something kind or loving to your spouse, but you're upset. And so what comes out is criticism. What comes out is frustration or withdrawal, right? You know that you should be kind and loving and generous to your neighbor, but they just are annoying you. And so what comes out of you is bitterness, right? That the thing that comes out of us in our default is not the good stuff, but the bad stuff, even though I know that I should do good things. Right? So I'm in this constant struggle on this back and forth. And if this is, if I want to know God, right, how do I know God when I'm in the midst of the struggle? Now, here's what I want you to see, right? Because Paul, Paul identifies, he diagnoses what actually is going on inside of me, why it is that we struggle to be good, why it is that we struggle to maintain this connection with God. And he identifies it as sin. Now, as soon as I say the word sin, 
uh, all of us have some definition in our minds. We have some idea in our minds of what that means, whether you're, not, you're a very religious person or not. Like, we tend to think of sin, and what we tend to think of are bad things, right? the bad things that I do. So when I think of sin, I think uh, I tend to lust, right? or I tend to be a greedy person, or, or I lie. Right? We tend to think of sin as things that I do, but I want you to see what Paul is saying here. Paul is, is saying that sin is not just the things that I do. It's not just the bad stuff that I do. Sin is, in fact, a power that controls me. Right? Sin is a power that controls me. Paul says this, sin dwells within me. Evil lies close at hand. That sin is a power. It's not just the things that I do. And I do sinful things because I am enslaved to sin. And that's a really, really important fundamental thing to get, that sin is not just the bad things that I do, but it's actually a power that I am enslaved to. And I, I want to just tease out a couple of things from this, though. Right? Like, if sin is just the things that I do, like I do sinful things, then what I need is a behavior management strategy. Right? If it's just bad things that I do, then I need, I need to replace those bad things with good things. This is often what religion does. So religion says, okay, here's the bad things. Now here's the good things to counteract the bad things. When I was a youth pastor, I worked with high school and college students. And, and one of the most pressing things that a lot of them struggled with was addiction to pornography. And, and I'd, I'd work with particularly these guys. And, and they would say, you know, they'd, they'd sound just like Paul here. I know I shouldn't do it. And yet I can't stop doing it. And their answer would often be, I need to get a bracelet. I need, to get, I need to get software on my computer and that will help me. But they, they always found a way around it. Why? Because they were enslaved to sin. It wasn't just the bad things that I do. You see, if you're enslaved to sin, then what you need is not a behavior management strategy. You need rescue and liberation. And that's why this is so fundamentally important. Let me tease another thing out of here with this idea, though, and that's this. Particularly if you're not yet a Christian, but even if you are a Christian, I think this is important to get. All right, if sin is not just the bad things that I do, but a power that enslaves me, then sin is going to feel natural. Right? Sin is going to feel natural, that I am enslaved to sin, and sin likes to keep me there. And so, so the things that come out of me most naturally in my default mode are not going to be the things of Jesus, but in, th in fact, things counter to Jesus. And this is why this is so important, because the cultural conversation around us right now says that the most true thing about you and the most important thing about you is your feelings. Your feelings and your desires Okay, so, so if the culture is saying your, your feelings and your desires are the most true and, and right thing about you, but, but Scripture is saying that you're actually a slave to sin, then, then that's going to be a hard thing for you to hear, right? But we actually need to consider that because that means that, that my most natural desires are, should be questioned and not trusted. Right? That, that my most natural desires, even just like we talk about sexuality, right? My most natural desires sexually are going to be counter to the things of Jesus because sin is a power that enslaves me. And so to say my, my desires are the thing that comes out of me most naturally and default is what's true of me is actually challenged by Scripture here. And so I should question, not fully embrace my most personal desires because I'm a slave to sin. This is really, really important. 
Because that, that changes how I think about myself. That changes how I think about my need for Jesus. That also changes, like if you're a Christian, that also changes how you think about people who aren't yet Christians. Right? Because for people who are not yet Christians, Scripture tells us they're enslaved to sin. Okay, which means that, that if I just say, do Christian things, they're not going to be able to do that. And so what they need is not legislation or moral teaching. What they need is the gospel of Jesus. And then and only then will they be able to follow what Jesus teaches. And this is so fundamentally foundationally important. But sin, the power of sin, keeps us enslaved in a number of ways. And one of the most powerful ways that sin keeps you and I enslaved is through the power of shame. I want to talk about how shame and sin work together to keep you from turning and trusting in Jesus. Okay, and what I mean by shame is, is shame is different than guilt. Guilt says I'm wrong. Shame says I'm unlovable. Shame says I, I'm rotten to my core and no one will embrace me or accept me. Okay, and I want you to see how sin and shame work. And so to do this, we have to go to the very beginning. And so in Genesis chapter three, if you have a Bible, flip all the way, it's probably on page two. Because in Genesis three, this is where we first learn of sin. This is where we first discover what sin does. And even if you are new to the Bible, you're probably familiar with some aspects of this story. Genesis tells us that God creates a world in which everything is perfect. Everything is provided. Everything that you need is there. And you have this perfect relationship with God. And even at the end of chapter two, it tells us that Adam and Eve, the man and the wife, were naked and unashamed. Right? Naked and unashamed. So they were fully known and they had nothing to hide. But Genesis 3 tells us that Adam and Eve are in the garden and the enemy, the serpent, who is later called the Satan. Now, this is really important. Satan is not a name, it's a title. And that title references what he does, which means that he accuses. All right, so when you think of Satan, it's not like his mom named him Satan. Right? It's a title of what he does. And what he does most normally is he accuses you. And that's going to be really important here in a second, okay? So Adam and Eve are in the garden. The Satan, the accuser, comes to them, tempts them to take the fruit of the tree. And Eve takes it. And in chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is our introduction to what sin does. And so I want you to see what sin does and how the accuser wants to keep you enslaved by sin. So the first thing that happens, it's a cycle of sin and shame. The first thing that happens is sin. All right, we'll put that up on the screen. Right? So sin, I do something wrong something that is counter to what God wants. So Adam and Eve, they take from the fruit of the tree. God clearly told them not to. And so the event or the act of sin happens. The second thing that then happens is conviction, right? Conviction. So they, they realize that they're naked. They realize that they have done something. And this is what God does through the Holy Spirit. He ignites conviction in you. And so, so he's gonna help you see that you are in fact guilty, that you are in fact uh, have run counter to the law of God and his character, right? And everything up until now is a, is a God-ordained, good, right, and true process, right? That if I do something wrong, I need to be told that. If I do something wrong, I need to 
own up to that. But here's what happens. As the Holy Spirit convicts me of my sin, the accuser comes in and he wants to point his finger at your sin. He's going to come in, he's going to, he's going to remind you of your sin so that you experience shame. And shame says that I am unlovable and that if God sees me in my sin, he's going to cast me out and he's going to hate me. And so the accuser is going to come in. He's going to rub this in your face. Notice that Adam and Eve say, I was afraid. I was afraid of you, God. I realized that I was naked. And so I feared you because I didn't know what you were going to do. This is what the accuser does. He's going to remind you over and over and over again. He's going to take God-ordained Holy Spirit conviction and he's going to twist it on you so that you feel shame so that rather than turning to God, you turn away from God and the end result is isolation. Adam and Eve hide themselves from God. And the text tells us that they cover themselves with fig leaves, right? That we hide ourselves from God. We cover up our sin Because we're ashamed and we're afraid of God, we cover up our sin with good works, with success, with with followers, with, with performance. Everything that we do is trying to put on a good face so that no one sees our sin. But the end result is that we are isolated and alone. And that's exactly where sin wants to keep you. Because when you're isolated and alone, you've, you've turned away from God when you needed him most. You've separated yourself from God and other people. You're putting on a nice face saying everything is fine, but the reality is sin and, sin and shame have you in its grip. This is exactly where the accuser wants you. So he's going to tell you over and over and over, you see how bad your sin is? You see how wicked you are? You see how terrible you are? God could never love you. So you go into shame, you hide from God, and you put on a good face, and you're a slave. This is what he wants. This is what sin and shame do. This is why this is so important to get. Because Romans 8.1, Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see, when you're caught in sin and shame, the accuser is rubbing your sin in your face. Saying, don't turn to God with that. Don't tell him about that. Don't open up about that. Don't share that because if you do, he will reject you and so will everyone else. And what the Holy Spirit does is he's not pointing to your sin, he's pointing to Jesus. And he says, there is no condemnation that when you turn to Jesus, when you turn from your sin and trust in him, he has defeated the power of sin and he has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And so if you simply turn to Jesus and trust in him, God's going to wrap you up in his arms and say, I love you, my child. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
He sets you free by doing what you couldn't do. He sent Jesus to die on the cross in your place. And notice what he does. He condemns it. He defeats the power of sin. And so it no longer has to keep you enslaved. And not only that, he fulfills the righteous requirement of the law for you so that when you fail, it's not that you come to God with a deficit. Jesus' righteousness is applied to you. And so you stand before God as a child of God who has been reconciled and redeemed and restored. And that is all that God sees because of Jesus. There is therefore now, today, no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, maybe you think that God just wants to shame you. Maybe right now you feel the conviction of your sin and you're afraid, what happens if I name this? What happens if I trust Jesus? What happens if I turn from my sin? I'm not sure. Like, what if my life gets hard or difficult? The message of the gospel is that God loved you enough to die for you. And so you don't have to fear anything anymore. So this is why Romans 8 is so powerful. Because if you get to the end of Romans 8, here is the thing. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to condemn you? He says, it is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The accuser wants you to run from God because when you run from God, you're stuck in his trap. And so what the Holy Spirit wants to do is he wants to show you your sin so that he can point you to Jesus so that you can turn from it and trust in him and find in Christ all that God requires of you. And the end result of this is confession. Right? That I can, I can name my sin. I can come to God with my sin. I can say, God, I turn from my sin and I trust in you and here are the things that I, I bring. Here are the things that I struggle with because none of that will ever separate you. None of that will ever separate you. The accuser wants you to hide your sin and not name it. The Holy Spirit says, come to Jesus, name your sin, give it to him, and you'll find freedom. There's no condemnation when you're in Christ Jesus. I told you at the beginning that I struggled with this sense of God's presence in my life. And I had this superstitious relationship with God where I'll do good things and then God will love me. I do bad things, God will hate me. It all came to a head when I was in seminary. That's how long this all took me, right? I'm in my mid-20s. I'm in seminary, training to be a pastor. Uh, And the first assignment of my seminary experience was that I had to spend a weekend in silence and solitude, which meant that I had to face this thing head on. I was gonna go into a cabin. I was gonna be all alone, no screens, no technology, just me, the Holy Spirit, and a Bible. And I was terrified because I thought in this space, I could walk out of here and what if God doesn't show up? 
What if he doesn't, what if he's not there? What if I'm the problem, right? So all these things are swirling in my head. So, so I put together a plan. I said, here's my plan. I'm going to come in. I'm going to, I'm going to read these books. I'm going to pray these prayers. I'm going to journal these things. I'm going to do these things. And about seven hours into this weekend, the sun's going down. And I have read every book, like every psalm, and I have prayed every prayer, and I've kneeled, and I've held my hands up on high, and I've, I've recited the Lord's Prayer, and I've sung praise songs, and, and everything just to try to feel some sense that God is there. And finally, I'm sitting on this couch, and I, I've entered kind of this place of like contemplation, right, where like I feel still. I feel like my, my brain is finally silent. I feel like my body is still. And, and finally, I'm like, this could be it. I feel it. And in that moment, the alarm on the coffee pot went off. <laughs> and my concentration was broke. And I had fought for seven hours to get to this place where I thought maybe, maybe, maybe God would be there. And in that moment, Romans 8.1 came flooding into my heart and my mind. I said, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As if God was saying, all this while, you've been trying to convince me to show up. Been trying to convince me to know you and to love you, and I have loved you all along. So stop trying to manipulate me and just trust me. Know that I'm here because I gave my son for you. I just wept. And that changed everything for me. Because God gave his son for you. And he gave you his Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit wants to do is tell you every moment of your life, Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for you. Christ took it all. So I just want to, in the final moments, I, mean, I want to just like tease out a couple of things for us. Right? If this is true, if Romans 8 is true, then what does that mean for you and I? And so I just have three things for you to consider right? so that you can know God personally in this kind of way. The first thing is this. If Romans 8.1 is true, then we can approach God without fear. Approach God without fear. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian and you're afraid of what's going to happen if you become one, God gave his son for you. And you don't have to fear him anymore. All the wrath and anger that God had towards sin, he poured out on Jesus. There's nothing left for you if you simply turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. But it also means Christian, approach God without fear. You don't have to convince him to love you. You don't have to convince him to show up for you. He's already there. And so approach him as a child of God. Someone that he loves and gave his son for. The second thing is this, name sin freely. Name sin freely. Right? That, that Romans 8.1 invites us to confess our sins. Because nothing can separate us. Nothing can get between you and God. Here's the thing, whether or not you confess your sins, God knows about them already. You're not going to surprise him by anything you say. And so you can name your sin openly, bring them to him and say, God, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I continue to wrestle with. Would you give me the strength and the freedom, Holy Spirit, to overcome this? But I also think there's, there, there's a, an aspect of this that I think is worth mentioning as we talk about shame this morning. And that's this, that, that sometimes it might not be your sin that is enslaving you, but somebody who has sinned against you that the accuser uses to keep you enslaved. Right, that, that maybe that cycle is not that I sinned and then I feel conviction, therefore I feel shame and I feel isolation, but there was a point in my life where someone sinned against me. 
And the Holy Spirit has helped me see that and I feel some conviction or some, some awareness of that. But what the accuser wants to do is he wants to use that sin against you to tell you that you're unlovable, to keep you in isolation, to keep you in shame and to not name that sin that happened against you. So you can hide and you're a slave. But the Holy Spirit wants you to name that openly. Shame hates vulnerability. Right? It wants you to hide. It wants you to pretend. It hates when you're open with people. And so when you say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I've dealt with. This is how someone has hurt me, saying that to a safe person, someone who can help you process that shame and that pain, the Holy Spirit is going to help that, use that to help set you free because he wants freedom for you. And so name sin freely. And lastly is this, see goodness as grace. Right? See goodness as grace. Paul says in chapter 7 that nothing good lives in me. And I think oftentimes the reason why we don't see God at work in our life is because we overestimate our goodness and we underestimate his presence. We overestimate our goodness, so we say, okay, I'm a kind person, I'm a loving person, I'm a patient person. That's because of me, because I've been working on my character, because I've been working on my issues, right? But but Paul says nothing good lives in me, which means that I cannot on my own produce anything good. And so I underestimate his presence. I say, I say, Holy Spirit, I've got this. I'm taking care of this, right? But the fruit of the Spirit, which we're gonna look at a little bit more next week, Romans 5, says this. This is how you know the Spirit's working in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. If nothing good lives in me, then when I am more kind or loving or gentle or patient, that's not me, that's the Holy Spirit. So the question is not, have you had this grand revelatory mountaintop moment, but are you more loving this year than you were last year? Are you more kind this year than you were last year? Are you more gentle this month than you were last month? Because if you are, and if you know Jesus, that is God at work in your life. And as soon as you start to get that, man, we're gonna see the Holy Spirit, evidence of the Holy Spirit all over the place. But we don't because we overestimate our goodness and we underestimate his presence. This is how God wants to know you and how he wants you to know him. Free from condemnation, free from shame because he took the penalty of your sin and he wants you to know him as a son or daughter of God. Let me pray for us this morning. God, I pray that in this space... God, the Holy Spirit, you're convicting people of sin. You're you're helping us to see ourselves clearly. But at the same time, there's an enemy, there's an accuser who wants to rub sin in our face so it will run from you. Holy Spirit, help us to see that there's therefore now no condemnation. That we can run to you, we don't have to run from you because you did everything that was required in Jesus. God, for the one who's here who's afraid of becoming a Christian, of trusting you because they don't know who you are, would you show them this morning the goodness of Jesus? Would you illuminate their hearts, Holy Spirit? Would you ignite conviction in them so that they can understand Christ's work? You can make them a Christian this morning. Pray this in the strong name of the risen Jesus. Amen.